Good afternoon, saints. This afternoon we would like to consider a passage from the book of Philippians, the very first chapter, chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Its sermon is entitled, Life Worthy of the Gospel of Christ. In our present day, Christianity is under attack, both from within and without. From within, there are many people who claim to be Christians, but unfortunately, they are not. Their actions are so shameful that it brings reproach to the church of the living God. From without, there are many people who are hostile to the Christian faith. The Christian faith is attacked especially by the Western media who portrays Christianity as that which is intolerant, biased, and opposed to human rights. And some of these thoughts are germinating right here in Zambia. Recently, one radio host ridiculed and chastised a caller who made mention of original sin. The host, the radio host, said such ideas that we are suffering right now due to the sin of one man and our tendencies to do evil is due to that very same man. Such ideas are backward, foolish, and we should not have such ideas in this enlightened age. While the nation is con Constitutionally a Christian nation, many self-proclaimed Christians, their behavior are so reprehensible, we wonder if the term Christianity means anything today. Last year I heard of two Christian preachers who got into a fistfight because they both wanted to preach the gospel on a minibus in order to collect funds from the passengers. On the intellectual landscape, in our various universities, many of the ideas that are brought forth are antithetical to Christian doctrine and values. On the economic level, it has been documented that wherever Protestantism plants root in a culture, it transforms the work ethic and produces human flourishing. And we wonder whether it has passed by this Christian nation. I believe it was last year the American ambassador Daniel Foods wrote, I was personally horrified to read yesterday about the sentencing of two men who had a consensual relationship which hurt absolutely no one to 15 years imprisonment. The American ambassador to Zambia went on to say that Zambia 
which portrays itself as a democracy, should avoid degradation of its own citizens, both economically and their political rights. While this attack is on the government, needless to say, we must recognize that it is an attack on our Christian values as to what is permissible in the bedroom. Furthermore, from within there is division even in the same Reformed Baptist denomination. There are divisions even within a single church. I will give you an example of an extreme case of division within a, within a single church. About 16 or 17 years ago, I was traveling from uh, Canada to Dominica and I stopped over in Trinidad for about a day and a half. And during my time there, I went into an evening service. And in that evening service, I came to find out that there was a division of opinions among the elders. It turned out that two of the elders typically sat on this side and another two typically sat on this side. Well, everyone who held to the views of the elders on this side sat behind them and those who hold to the views of the other two elders sat behind them. And whenever there is a social gathering, those on this side will not invite those on this side and vice versa. Within the same church. Can you believe? So should such disharmony exist within the body of Christ? How then are we to deal with the various pressures, both internal and external, that we, the church of the living God, faces. To put the question differently, what encouragement can we draw from the apostles and church history regarding internal and external pressures? That's what we shall consider in our text this evening. Before we read the text, let us call upon the name of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather once again this evening to consider your word. Your word is the living, active, and powerful word that goes out and changes lives. And so we pray that you would empower me to speak your word truthfully, accurately, and that you would transform each and every person under the preaching of the word. I need to be challenged and transformed by this word. And we all do. So we pray that your word would have tremendous effect among us this evening. Amen. What we want to do this evening is to walk through the text together and I'll be making some comments as we walk through this passage from the book of Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 to 30. 
The passage begins with Paul announcing the advancement of the gospel. In verse 12 he writes, I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is speaking of his imprisonment in Rome and he is saying my imprisonment has led to the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of the gospel has come in two different forms. First, the advancement of the gospel in rank and secondly, the advancement of the gospel in boldness. The advancement of the gospel in rank is given to us in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. While Paul is imprisoned, the gospel has climbed all the way to the imperial guard. The high offices of Rome are being confronted with the gospel through Paul's imprisonment. The advancement of the gospel in boldness is given to us in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and much more bold to speak the word without fear. While Paul is in prison in Rome, the preachers of the gospel in Rome are emboldened to preach that gospel. Perhaps they are saying, if Paul can be in prison for the sake of the gospel, then I don't care if I am in prison also, I will preach that gospel without fear. But the preaching of the gospel comes with mixed motives, and we see that in verses 15 to 17. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put there for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This is pressure from within. Paul is recognizing that in Rome there are some preachers who are envious of him because, most likely because of his popularity. And now they are preaching the gospel more so to, grad, to gather larger congregations unto themselves. Paul says, look, despite the wrong motives that they have, I'm still happy that the gospel is being proclaimed. The advancement of the gospel is the proclamation of the gospel. We see that in verse 18, Paul writes, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Paul is rejoicing in the proclamation of the gospel, not merely in the conversion of sinners. Of course, he rejoices when every single sinner is converted. But remember what Paul is saying. I'm not just rejoicing due to conversions. I am rejoicing at the proclamation of the gospel. 
And this gives encouragement to preachers who preach in very difficult places where they see very little conversions. We can rejoice for them preaching the gospel. Another reason for rejoicing is given to us. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And he's referring to release from prison. In verse 20, he goes on to say, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Paul is saying, whatever the outcome, life or death, I will rejoice. Let's consider the next few verses, beginning at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Here are the two options. First, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. The second option, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. In what we are considering here, we are seeing a key element of Paul's message to the Philippian church and that comes to us in the next few verses that we are about to read and that is verses 27 to 30 of Philippians chapter 1. There we find the key message of our text. Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his name's sake. Notice what Paul is saying. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. When we hear the phrase or the clause, manner of life be worthy of the gospel, we typically think in the moral category. A life that is worthy of the gospel is a life that is lived with honesty, fidelity, modesty, and contentment. 
these things are worthy of the gospel. And they are referred to in another context, and that is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In this passage, we see these things, these moral things that are worthy of your calling, worthy of the gospel. But strictly speaking, in the context of Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, a life that is worthy of the gospel is not primarily in the moral context, but rather in the theological sense. Notice what he says in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A life that is worthy of the gospel in this context is primarily in the theological sense, united theologically to fight for the gospel. John Calvin, commenting on that text, says, Paul calls them to notice that they are fellow soldiers who have a common enemy and a common warfare, ought to have their minds united together in holy agreement. There is a unity of purpose that Paul is calling for the Philippian church to have. And that unity of purpose has two objectives. First, courage instead of fear. Look with me at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but for your salvation and that from God. And not frightened by your opponents. Courage instead of fear. Secondly, the second objective of that unity is to be willing to suffer. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. So in some, the context of Philippians chapter 1 verses 22, 27 to 28 is a life that is worthy of the gospel, a life where the saints are of one mind, one set of common beliefs, they are united and striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. And they are willing to suffer for that gospel. Now this is where things get a bit interesting. This notion of being willing to suffer is a lost notion for most churches here 
in Lusaka. For most people in the various churches around us, this notion of Christian suffering is foolish. If you are a Christian, you ain't supposed to suffer. After all, you're supposed to have power over the devil and his forces that you step them down and that you strike them out and you live life in abundance. Not suffering. But all they have to do is read verse 29. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his name's sake. So Christians should expect suffering. But suffering for what truths? Christians must be willing to suffer for the gospel. So what is the gospel? The word gospel simply means good news. In the New Testament, it's, it is the good news that we who are sinners can be reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a loaded statement. And we have several passages in the scripture that summarizes the essential truths of the gospel. One such passage that is a summary of the essential truths of the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 to 7. And this is the first creed that we have. This is the first Christian creed. It summarizes the essential components of the gospel. Follow with me as we read 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll begin from verse 1 where we see the summary of essential gospel truths and the creed begins at verse 3. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Here's the creed. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to all the apostles. And here we have... A summary of some of the essential truths of the gospel. Another summary text in the scriptures is John 3.16, a text that we all know very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. This one passage captures some of the essential truths of the gospel, but it's a loaded text. Just consider how loaded this text is. It begins by saying, for God, which God? Is it the Greek conception of God? Is it referring to Zeus, who is merely an elevated human being with the same passions, the same sinful passions as other human beings? 
No, it's not referring to that kind of God. Is it referring to a pantheistic conception of God, that which you find in Buddhism and New Age spirituality, where God is one with us. We all share in the nature of God, whether it is the tree or the chair, everything is God. Absolutely not. This is not the type of God that John 3.16 is referring to. Rather, it is referring to a Christian conception of God, a God who has a son, the only begotten son. Only begotten comes from the Greek word monogenes. Monogenes means a single of a kind, unique. Therefore, this son of God is Jesus Christ. He is the unique son of God. He is different from every other son of God because he shares the very same nature as God the Father. And therefore, this rules out the Jehovah Witnesses who make Jesus to be a mere creature of God the Father. John 3.16 goes on to say, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That rules out any Christian denomination that bases salvation on works. For example, the Roman Catholic Church in the Council of Trent, wrote these words. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious are justified, in such a wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. A key doctrinal statement of the Roman Catholic Church says, if you believe that salvation is by faith alone and does not include works, you are damned. Let him be anathema. But this is totally contrary to what we see in the scriptures, especially Galatians 2.16 and Romans 3.28. Therefore, that excludes Rome. Let's go back to the goal of the Apostle Paul. Central goal is given to us in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That is, be theologically unified to fight for the gospel. Now, to what extent must this unity go? Well, verses 12 to 17 helps us. Consider verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is referring to his imprisonment in Rome that has served to advance the gospel. 
And yet still he says in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul recognizes that some of the preachers in Rome are preaching the gospel, but for the wrong motive. They are envious of him and they are preaching the gospel out of a sinful motive. But notice what Paul is doing. Because their teaching is not abominable, that is, their teaching is orthodox, they are within the pale of orthodoxy, Paul says that I rejoice in the advancement of their preaching, although they are envious men who are doing the preaching. Paul's imprisonment demonstrates that we are to be willing to suffer for the gospel. But what are the truths of the gospel that we are to be willing to suffer for? These are the key truths that we must hold on to. These are the truths that Paul was willing to die for. For he said in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. His point is simple. If I go on living, I will live to serve Christ. And if I die, I will serve him for all eternity. And since this is the case, since Christians must be willing to suffer for the cardinal truths of the gospel, what are these truths that we must be willing to die for? Well, a few passages of scripture will help us in this regard. Second John verses 7 to 9 says, Those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh... Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Everyone who, does, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And here the cardinal truth is the person of Jesus Christ. If you have the wrong view of Jesus, then you are not a Christian. Who Jesus is is important. Secondly, we have Galatians chapter 1 verse 9. Paul writes, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you receive, let him be accursed. And the emphasis in Galatians is salvation by faith alone. And if you reject salvation by faith alone, you reject an essential doctrine of the gospel. Now, we have seen the creedal statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which gives us some essential truths of the gospel. It is the first Christian creed. Now, after the canon... 
We have another creed called the Apostles' Creed. It was written in 140 AD, and it is a creed to give us a summary of some of the essential things that the Apostles taught. And it is couched in a Trinitarian context. It has three I believes to point to this Trinitarian conception. Notice, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The first I believe. The second I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Here is the third I believe. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of sin the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Three I believes. I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Denial of the Trinity therefore puts someone outside the pale of orthodoxy and cannot be saved. Besides the Apostle Creed, where else can we turn for the essential truths of the gospel. The Protestants during the Reformation summarized, the various denominations summarized their views based on scripture and in there we have both the cardinal truths of the gospel but also some truths that are peculiar to the various denominations. But we must recognize that certain of the truths that the Baptist has that are different from the Presbyterians are not outside the pale of orthodoxy and vice versa. Therefore, should not these two groups be willing to do what Paul has commanded Christians to do in verse 27? Where Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear that you are doing what? You are standing firm in one spirit with one man, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Should not different denominations be able to do that? Paul is writing to Christians in general. Absolutely they should. We must recognize that as a church, we, the body of Christ, the church of Christ, must pursue what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 to 3. Paul writes, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Remember the goal. And the goal is this. That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. The goal is unity for the sake of the gospel. We are to be willing to die for the gospel. How much more are we to unite for the sake of that same gospel? 
First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. I will close with the words that were attributed to Augustine of Hippo. For many years I thought he wrote those words. <laughs> Only recently in preparing the sermon I came to realize it was written by a German uh, Lutheran theologian named Rupitus Meldianus. These words should ring in our ears and remain with us. In essentials unity, in none essentials liberty, in all things charity. In essentials unity, in none essentials liberty, in all things love. Let us close in prayer. Great God Almighty, you have called this body to unite. The Lord Jesus Christ, you said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. We pray, O oh God, that this love will be seen and experienced in this church. And even outside of this church, may the Church of Christ unite. Amen.